We live in a machine that is designed to distract us from what is meaningful about life. It's designed to tell you, you don't feel good? Oh, buy this particular fucking shampoo. Buy this, you know, piece of shit trainers that you'll never look at again. You know, whatever bullshit it is, right? So I think that's something where you, you meet with your friends. I, I, have, I now have these conversations with my friends all the time, right? What is meaningful? Wait, you think you want that. Why do you want that? Is that meaningful to you? Just that reorientation in how we think about life. Just thinking, oh, this shit is implanted in my head by people who wanted to sell me something. That is not authentic. That is not me. That is not who I am. That is not going to make me feel good. It might give you a little hit for five minutes. We've all had that experience of going and buying an expensive thing and then getting home and just feeling really deflated. So that, I would give it, is a very concrete example of a kind of, yeah, like kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for the bullshit of the culture, right? That's author and journalist Johan Hari. And this is part two of my conversation with him on episode 268 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is part two of episode 268 with author and journalist Johan Hari. You can find him on Twitter at johanhari101. Also, his website, thelostconnections.com. This is our first week in trialing out a new two-part format of the show. I'd love to know what you think. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Thank you so much for your feedback already. Uh, we're definitely going to look at all the numbers and work out how I figured it out. If you haven't heard the first part of this show, I'd recommend you go back and listen to it. If you haven't heard why we're doing two parts, I would recommend you go back and listen to the other part just for the full explanation. But please do let me know what you think of the, the new format. Send us your email at gmail.com. We are working to make sure as many people as possible can enjoy as much of this podcast as possible. As possible. Um, I did want to say a, a big thank you to everybody that sent in a podsy pick through the week. Got a few more actually came through just in the last couple of days. Ashley Shields sent me a cracking one operating what looks like to be a bulldozer the size of my house in the Northern Pilbara in Western Australia. Actually, that is a very, very, very big looking machine. Um, Terry sent me a great picture of, uh, I believe, waiting for a plane from Melbourne to Sydney. And it's a beautiful picture of uh, Terry's admiring one of five pairs of shark socks that Terry has. So it's a great picture of Terry's right foot. But that's what he's looking at when he's listening to the show, which is great. As well as Katie. Katie's in Athens Airport uh, with a block of crunch and a toy cow in the handbag. I adore the flaming lips, Katie writes. I am sorry the reference to the link uh, was linked to the passing of your friend, but the relevance of the lyrics wasn't lost on me. Oh, that's right. We talked about, we talked about that. Oh, yeah. Dr. Caitlin Mankey. Wow, Caitlin, thank you so much. That is really interesting. There's a picture of her handbag, indeed, with a toy cow and a Nestle Crunch biscuit in Greece. Wow, that's brilliant. We're all over the world. That's fantastic. So good. Love to see uh, where you're listening to the show. Send us your email at gmail.com is where you can find me. I hope you're doing well. It's the middle of the week. I hope uh, you know, you're, you're taking control of the things you can and have the courage to, you know, <laughs> do all the things you can't. I'm a terrible 12-stepper. I can never remember that. 
Oh, boy. I'm looking forward to Friday night. Friday night, we're going to hit Brisbane, uh, which is ace. Uh, I'm stoked. Um, some of my brothers are coming, which is going to be unreal. I'm so, so, so excited. It's a full house. It's an absolute sellout. I appreciate that people have been DMing me and emailing my management, but we really, we actually cannot put any more people in. We can't build new chairs in the theatre. That's it. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the show's a total sellout. Uh, however, there are some new shows showing up, and if you want to find out more about those new shows, you can sign up to the email list at oshiginsberg.com. There are three new shows on the horizon, and if you're on the emailing list, uh, I will let you know there first. So they are send osher email at gmail.com is my email address, but you can sign up to the email list osherginsberg.com. If you sign up there, I'll let you know about the new shows first. You'll be the first to know. Yeah. Emailing email lists, email lists, the newsletter. It's all it's all happening. So now I'm gonna email you like it's 2015, which I think was the last time I sent one. But you know, I'm a shit digital marketer, but I've been trying not to be lately. <laughs> um, uh, to check in with you, I guess that's a part of you know that's a part of what I'm trying to do this year. I'm trying to take this podcast to an entirely new level, and, and the new formats a part of that. Um, trying to work on the communication um, between me and you is a big part of that as well, which is where the email list and the Facebook group come in. And my goal for this year on the show is just. Uh, as much as I can, A-list guests and A-list conversations. That's all I want to bring you. That is all I want to bring you. So I'm going to try as hard as I can, as hard as I can to make sure this show is freaking awesome. We're going to do something big with this show in this year, you and me. And um, I'm excited, excited to have you be a part of it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. If you haven't listened to part one, this is part two of my conversation with author and journalist Johan Hari. Uh, his second book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, is an extraordinary read. In the first part, he kind of connected, uh, I guess the, the overall hypothesis and kind of metaphor that he uses is that wanting to vomit is to you know, the kind of food you've put in your body if you've eaten something horrible as anxiety and depression is to, you know, the, the way you're living your life and the environment you're living in and your circumstances in that it's a signal. It's a signal that something's not right and you have unmet needs. And Johan explores that to great depth in his book, The Lost Connections, and identifies, in fact, nine separate causes of depression and anxiety and also how to manage them. And we kind of get into that more in this part of the conversation. It's an extraordinary read. I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it uh, because if you've got anything going on with your head or someone in your life has got something going on with their head, there's nothing 
better than knowledge to make you feel better and a little more in control about everything. Um, a bit of a trigger warning here. We do talk about um, not only medication in this conversation, and I've got to tell you, do not stop taking your medication. Do not change your dosage of medication without talking to your doctor. 100% do not do that. You have some horrible things happen to you if you do that. So please, please, please do not do that. Also, we do talk about childhood trauma and particularly uh, sexual trauma. But I hope you can stick with it. I uh, hope you enjoy this second part of the conversation with the extraordinary Johan Hari. You can find him on Twitter at Johan Hari 101. That's J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I 101. Or go to his website, thelostconnections.com and enjoy this conversation with Johan Hari. We've talked a bit about meds. Let's talk about some of the other ways that you discovered helped people. We've, we've already talked about the cow. In the book, you say, essentially, you're like, as humans, we have needs. Uh, we need to be, we need to belong. We need to feel that we're good at stuff. We need to feel valued by others. We need to feel secure about our future. We need to feel that our life and work has meaning. You take those five things away, it's pretty easy to see how someone can slip off the edge, all right? You take one of those five things away, you can see, how, it's pretty easy to see how things can get tricky quickly. People are listening, people have, they may have realized, okay, I'm in Johan, I relate here and here and here and here, what next? What's a way that we can feel we belong, Johan? Let, let me give you a really concrete example. So I noticed that loads of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to think, well, is how typical are the people I know? So I looked, there's a big study done by Gallup, the opinion poll company, including in Australia, a massive study looking at how do people in the Western world feel about work. And what they found was 13% of us, 1-3%, like our jobs most of the time, right? Uh, 63% of what they called sleepworking, you don't like it, you don't hate it, you're just kind of getting through the day. And 24% of people fucking hate and fear their jobs, right? Quite struck by that. 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. And that thing is actually spreading over more and more of the day, right? The average British person now answers their work, first work email at 7.43 a.m. and clocks off at 7.15 p.m., right? So I start to think, well, could this have some effect on our mental health that we don't like the thing we're doing most of the time? And what can we do about that? So I, I start to look into this and I discovered that an incredible Australian, I think perhaps the greatest living Australian, a man called Professor Michael Marmot had, except for Kylie, uh, had discovered an incredibly important, and maybe um, the guy who plays um, Paul Robinson Neighbours, but... Um, had discovered this incredibly important breakthrough in about what causes depression at work, right? So he did this in the 70s. I can tell you how if you want, but I'll say the heart of it. He discovered it's not the only thing, but the most the biggest factor that causes depression at work is if you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your work, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious, right? It's significant figures. And I was thinking about this, and of course it totally fits with we need to feel we're doing something meaningful with our lives, right? And if you're controlled, you can't create meaning out of your work, right? And that's so obvious you don't need to explain it. But I was listening to that, and at first I actually misunderstood what all this meant, right? So I thought the implication of what Professor Marmot, I remember talking to him about this, I thought the implication of what Professor Marmot was saying was, okay, you've got this 13% of elite people at the top who get to have nice, meaningful jobs, and then you've got everyone else. And I thought about my family. You know, my brother is an Uber driver. My, my grandmother's job was to clean toilets. My, my dad was a bus driver. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Are you saying they're all condemned to this shit life? And he said, no, Johan, you don't understand. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work, right? And it turns out there's an antidepressant for that. 
And if I explain it at first, some of your listeners are going to think I'm saying you should go and do this now. And they're going to think I can't go and do that. And it's true. As our society works at the moment, most of us can't do this. This is an argument for a bigger change that I'll explain. So I went to, I went and interviewed this woman in Baltimore called Meredith Keogh, uh, who's a little bit younger than me. And Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night and just sick with anxiety, right? And she had an office job. As she would tell you, it wasn't the worst office job in the world, right? She wasn't being bullied or harassed or anything. But it was pretty monotonous. And she just couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next, like, 40 years of her life until she retired. So one day with her husband, Josh, Meredith did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a teenager. And as you can imagine, especially in the US, working in a bike store is pretty controlled. You don't make, you don't make decisions on your own. It's pretty insecure. You don't even have sick pay or anything like that. It's a pretty insecure way of living. And one day, Josh and his um, colleagues were in their bike store. And they said to themselves, what? what does our boss actually do? And they were like, looking at him, he wasn't a particularly, they didn't hate him, wasn't an evil boss, but they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money. What would happen if we did this differently? So they decided to open a bike store of their own that works on a different principle. So the place where they'd worked before was like most of your listeners will work in a place. It was a corporation, right? Very recent human invention, the corporation. So you know how it works. It's structured like an army. You've got the boss at the top. Uh, and we all have to kind of obey the boss at the top. And sometimes the boss is nice and sometimes they're nasty. But, you know, if you don't obey them, you're out, right? Yeah. If you consistently obey them, you're out. Josh and his colleagues decided to set up a bike store. It's called Baltimore Bicycle Works. It's works on a different principle, much older American idea, actually. It's a democratic cooperative. So the way it works is they don't have a boss. They run the business together. They take the decisions together. In practice, they have a meeting once every three weeks, I think it is. And most of the time they agree, but not always. If they don't agree, they vote. They share the profits, they share out the good tasks and the shit tasks, so no one gets stuck with the shit tasks. And if someone has an idea, they can try and persuade the other people and make it work. And one of the things that was so interesting was sitting, spending time in Baltimore Bicycle Works, talking to the people there. How many of them talked about how they had been depressed and anxious in their previous way of working, but were not depressed and anxious now, which totally fits with what Professor Marmot found about control, right? And it's like, it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went to become like Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before, they fixed bikes now. What changed? Now they've got control over their work. Imagine how many people you know who are depressed and anxious now, who if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace that they controlled with their colleagues, where everyone was the boss, where they were the boss together, where if there has to be a boss, he's elected by them and accountable to them, where no one got stuck with all the shit tasks all the time, and where you had agency and control over your work, that's a very different way of spending most of your waking hours than the way most of us live now, right? Um, and this isn't some like wacky idea. Cornell University found democratic businesses are already 10,000 of them in the United States. Democratic businesses grow on average four times faster than non-democratic businesses for obvious reasons, right? People are really fucking committed to them. They really want them to succeed. They People bring all their energy to it because it's not deadening and awful. So that's one example of now that's a big social change right but it's a less big social change than a lot of the things we've lived through right yeah. uh, i'm gay i'm 40 i didn't even hear the concept of gay marriage till i was 20 years old right the women listening to this don't need me to explain but mansplain this to them but my grandmothers weren't even allowed to have bank accounts when they got married right there are big changes that happen all the time when people band together and, and fight for them so I, th I think what we have to do is get to the heart of why so many of us are finding life so hard. And at the moment, the trend is for work becoming more controlled. You know, you think about not just people who live in Amazon, working in Amazon warehouses, but like 
just work being over monitored, over controlled, you know, constantly on email. Mm. We can reverse these trends. There's no reason why we should be organizing our societies. So we are, most of us are spending most of our time in places that make us feel like shit, right? That yeah. does not have to be the case. I, um, I was reading your book when I was, I was uh, shooting a show. I, even though I, I, do, I do this podcast, I have a, a few different jobs. And one of them is I host the uh, Australian version of The Bachelor. And we also do a show called Bachelor in Paradise, which we shoot in Fiji, where my wife is from. And so for a month or so, we're out in Fiji. I was reading your book and the way that it works there is a lot of the resorts are built on land that was owned by the village. And the deal is that you build a resort here, but you have to employ people from the village who live literally next door, all right? And I'm reading your book and, you know, you're covering these points of people need to feel they belong, they need to feel they're good at something, they need to feel their value, they need to know they have a future and they need to know their life has meaning. And every day I would watch at low tide two adults and five kids walk out onto the reef with a net and the adults would show the boys, uh, you know, we can talk about the patriarchal notion of village life in Fiji on another podcast, but each day <laughs> the adults would show the children, this is how we fish. And they would spend about an hour out there between the just coming into the low tide and just coming out of the low tide when they could walk on the reef and they would go home. And I'm thinking, look at that. Look at these little eight-year-old kids. Do they feel they belong? Absolutely. They're eight. And as far as they're concerned, they've helped feed their village tonight. Do they feel they're good at something? Yeah, they've had two adults go, good on you, mate. Do they feel they're valued? Absolutely. Do they feel they have a future? They know how to feed themselves. Everything will be fine because they know how to feed themselves. Do they feel their life have meaning? Yes, they do. Now, Johan, we can't all live in a village in Fiji because it doesn't quite work at scale. There's maybe only about 100, I don't know how close to Dunbar's number it is, but it's close, 140, maybe 200 people in each village. But their needs are being met. The needs that you describe are being met. And it's a 21st century example of the society that you described in the start of our conversation that we've you know, moved away from. Besides creating a collective workspace, um, between now and when we, when we do that, what are some steps that, that we can take to get our needs met, to begin to meet those human needs, the needs for the deep connection, the needs for the things that, as you say, really matter in life? I want to um, answer that in a second, but just in relation to that story, which I love, um, you just said about Fiji, you know, you compare that to our kids, right? So in Britain, there was a study that found now the average British child spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner. Because by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day outside. So we have imprisoned our children worse than we imprison our rapists and murderers, right? And we're surprised that they're showing things like epidemic. And you think about, for example, there's a woman called um, Jill, Professor Jill Twenge, who I interviewed, who has shown today, the average teenage girl in the United States shows the same levels of anxiety as the average mental patient did in the 1950s, right? Literally institutionalized mental patient. I think we've created a, a, an environment that doesn't meet our needs as adults, but I think it particularly doesn't meet our, the needs of children, right? It's n there's never been a society that tried to raise children in this deeply weird, isolated way where they're kept indoors. It's terrible for them. In terms of what we can do, I mean, I go through, loads, obviously, the last third of the book is an attempt to answer that question, but can I give you one example of, I think I've actually seen how we can be like that village in Fiji, right? I've seen it happen in front of me and it happened in an unlikely place. I have to tell you the story of how it happened because I think it tells us a lot of lessons. So in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous council estate in Berlin, uh, you say council estate in Australia, don't you? Not housing. Oh, it's like housing, housing commission. It's the, the housing that the government provides to people who can't afford to, to have a house. 
let's call it a housing commission. I couldn't remember the phrase in Australia. Yeah. So on a big anonymous housing commission in Berlin, uh, a woman called Nuria Changis climbed out of her wheelchair and put a sign in her window. She was on the ground floor. The sign said something like, I got my notice saying I'm going to be evicted next week, next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this housing commission, it's a slightly weird place. It's called Cotty. It's in the middle of, it's in West Berlin. And it was kind of, it had been a very poor area the whole time the wall was up. And basically only three groups of people had lived there. There were recent Muslim immigrants like this woman, Nuria. There were punk squatters and there were gay men. And as you can imagine, these three groups looked at each other with a bit of incomprehension. But it was a big, like, anonymous place. No one really knew anyone. So people start walking past Nuria's window on this housing commission, and they, they, no one knows her. So people start to knock on her door, and they say, are you all right? And at first, Nuria said, fuck you, I don't want any help, and shut the door in their face. But in this housing commission, lots of people were pissed off because all of them had seen their rents go up and up, and lots of people were being evicted. And a lot of people thought, well, it's her now, but it's going to be me next, right? So one of them, you might remember this is the this is the summer that the Arab Spring was happening, all these images from Egypt. One of them looked at this and had an idea, right? There's a big thoroughfare that goes through this housing commission, Cotty, into the center of Berlin. And one of them said, you know, if we just blocked the road on Saturday and we protest and we wheel Nuria out, they'll probably be a bit fuss in the media. They'll come and cover it. They'll probably let us stay. We might even get a bit of pressure to keep our rents down. So they decided to do it. People just stand outside a flat. They start doing, start planning it, right? Gets to Saturday, they block the road. Nuria was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I might as well let them wheel me into the middle of the road. They wheel her out and the media does come. And they interview Nuria, who's a bit puzzled to be interviewed. Uh, and the people who live there talk and explain how they're pissed off. And then it gets to the end of the day and the police say, okay, you've had your fun, take it down. But of course, the people who live there, you know, they're like, well, but you haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. And actually what we want is a rent freeze for our whole housing commission. So when we've got that, then we'll take this barricade down. But obviously they knew the minute they left this barricade, the police would just take it down and that would be that, right? So one of my favorite people at Cotty, a woman called Tanya Gartner, who's one of the punk squatters, she, um, Tanya wears these tiny miniskirts, even in Berlin winter, she's quite hardcore. Tanya ha- went up to a flat and she had a klaxon, you know, those things that make really loud noises at soccer matches. She brought it down and she said, okay, everyone, I've got a plan. What we're going to do is we're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day till we get what we want. If the police come to take it down, let off the klaxon, we'll all come down and stop them, right? So people start signing up to man this barricade. People who would never have met, right? We don't know each other. Um, So Tanya, in her tiny little miniskirt, got paired with Nuria, who's a very religious Muslim who wears a full hijab, right? And they got, I'm trying to remember, I think they got the Tuesday night shift, if I remember right. And so they sit there in the cold, right? It's good Berlin nights, cold. And they're like, we've got nothing to talk about. It's very awkward. It's really embarrassing. Tiny would just tap away on her laptop. As the weeks went on, they started chatting. They discovered they had something in- incredibly powerful in common. Um, Nuria started to talk about when she'd first come to Berlin. She told Tanya something she'd actually never told anyone in Germany. So she'd come when she was 16 years old with her two young children from a village in Turkey. And she was meant to earn enough money for her husband to send back home for her husband to come and join them, right? So she's working every hour she can, looking after her kids. And after she'd been there for a year and a half, she got word from home that her husband had died. She'd always told people in Germany her husband died of a heart attack. Sitting there in the cold in Cotty, she told Tanya 
the truth, which is that he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as like a shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she almost never talked about. Tanya had herself come to Koti when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by a middle-class family because she loved punk so much. She'd come and she'd started living at a punk squat. She actually got pregnant when she was 16. They both realized they'd been alone with children in this place they didn't understand. They realized they had so much in common. This was happening with loads of these pairings in Cotty. One day, it's funny, directly opposite this, this housing commission, there's, um, there's a, a gay club called Zudblock, run by a man I love called Richard Stein, who is it's quite a hardcore gay club to give you a sense of what they're like. The I've, previous look, place- Johan, I've, I've been to Berlin. It's one of my <laughs> favorite cities in the world. Uh, uh, let me tell you, it, it it looked like gay Disneyland more so than San Francisco could ever be. <laughs> You're exactly right. I mean, the place that Rickard owned prior to this gay club was called Cafe Anal, which I think yeah. gives you some sense. Yeah. There you go. Like, when they opened this gay club, this gay club But it's opened. fine. It's okay. We all, it's fine. We are all adults. It's why you had a problem. <laughs> it's just so German. I love it. <laughs> it's so German. When they, when they opened this gay club, uh, gay bar and club, uh, two years before the protest. You know, there were, there's a lot of religious Muslims who live there. Uh, some people have been really pissed off. Some people actually smashed their windows. And when the protest began, Zudblock, this gay club, gave all their furniture uh, they, to the protest. And after a while, they started saying, you know, you guys could have all your meetings in, a, in our club if you want. We'll give you free drinks. We'll give you free food. And even the lefties who lived at Cotty were like, you know, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath posters for like fisting night, right? It's not going to happen. It did happen. As one of the Muslim German women there said to me, we all realized we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for a year and the barricade had been manned 24 hours a day for a year, one day a guy arrived at the protest. He's called Tunkai. He was at the time, he was in his early 50s. And when you meet Tunkai, it's clear he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties uh, and he'd been living homeless. But he's also got an amazing energy about him. He started offering to help. And people really liked him. By this point, they'd actually built a permanent structure in the middle of the street, right? It wasn't just a barricade anymore. It had a roof and everything. And after a while, they said to him, you know, you should come and live in this thing that we've built, right? We don't want you to be homeless. Come and live there. Everyone liked him. So Tunkai started to live there and he became a much loved part of the uh, Koti protest. And, and after he'd been there for nine months, one day the police came. They would come and inspect every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. And he thought the police were arguing. So he went to hug one of the police officers to calm him down. And the police officer thought Tunkai was attacking him. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, often in a literal padded cell. He'd escaped one day, lived on the streets for a few months and found his way to Cotty. So they took him back to this psychiatric hospital, back to this padded cell, at which point the entire Cotty protest turned into a kind of free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other end of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got, they've got this person they've had shut away for 20 years and suddenly there's these like very camp gay men, these women in hijabs and these punks demanding his release. But I remember Uli Hartmann, one of the protesters, said to them, but he doesn't belong with you. You don't love him. He belongs with us. We love him. Many things happened at Koti. Uh, they got Tunkai back. It took a little while. Um, they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the city. Um, they got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. But the last time I saw Nuria, um, I remember she said to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. 
I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along and I never knew. And I would have never known, right? And I remember Tanya saying to me one time sitting with her outside Ziploc, she said to me, when you feel like shit and you're all alone, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight. And we realized we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. And I think it's pretty clear from what I'm saying that I love these people in Cotty. I think they're amazing. But in one sense, they are not exceptional. They were random people, right? This hunger for reconnection is just below the surface in everyone around you, right? If you're listening to this on a train, there are people feeling that hunger all around you. You're listening to it on a street, in a park. It, this, is, this is very close to the surface. You don't, this is not like explaining quantum physics to people, right? People get this absolutely intuitively when you explain it to them. And, and, and I can tell you about all the science, and obviously I learned a lot from the scientists. But in a way, I think the most profound lessons I learned from my book, Lost Connections, were from the people in Cotty. Because, you know, think about how distressed these people were, right? Nuria was about to kill herself. Uh, Tonkai was shut away in an actual padded cell. Loads of the people there were terribly depressed and anxious. In the main, they did not need to be drugged. They needed to be together. They needed to be seen. They needed to have purpose. They needed to be valued and loved. And that, to me, is the heart of what we need to rediscover now. Now, obviously, I go through lots of specific techniques people can do, lots of social changes. But most of the time when people ask me this, I just want to I remember that the Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said, home is where people notice when you're not there. By that standard, a lot of us are homeless, right? Or have a very small home, a very small sense of home, right? And these are really primal, basic human things that we need, right? There's never been humans before as we've tried to live like this, right? There are some good things about the way we live for sure, right? But there's a this growing, and, and, and we haven't talked about Australia, but there's this, you know, Australia is off the scale. I mean, Australia has the highest level of chemical antidepressant use in the whole world per capita after Iceland. And there's like five people in Iceland and one of them is Bjork. So like, <laughs> you know, this, this is particularly an enormous crisis in Australia for reasons that, you know, I've spent a fair bit of time in Australia, but I don't feel I've quite cracked. Does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely do. And I guess what I would love is if we, because we, we've, we've been talking for a little while and we've spoken a bit about some of the things that you discovered about the, and you know, you've told a great story about what happens to a community when they, when they feel they they belong, when they feel they're good at something. You know, we're, we're good at protesting, we're, we're valued because I'm going to wake people up if the cops come. Uh, do we have a sense of future? I didn't before, but I have an idea of what a future could be. You know, frozen rent. Um, does do I have meaning? Yeah, I mean to the people who are sleeping right now, knowing that I'm awake. We don't all have a housing protest. We don't all have that. What are some things that might be within the uh, the kind of like. Podcast audiences are interesting because they can at least afford a smartphone, all right, or at least afford an internet connection. So there is a a ceiling and a and a bottom to you know the kind of I guess the economic people that that can listen to this show. So within that, what are some moves that people could make? You, you mentioned, you know, I, I know you talk about it in the book, you know, and I high, highly recommend it. Uh, I particularly love the audiobook because, as you can hear, you know, Johan's a very um, emotive man, and I, I loved hearing it. You know, what's a simple thing that someone can do today to get one or two of these things kind of back into their life, back within their locus of control, their internal locus of control? I'll give you an example of again one of the difficult ones that I difficult causes of depression anxiety that I learned about, but that has this really interesting solution. That so everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? 
But there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick, right? For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? It's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said, right? There's equally... So, so the, I learned... Weirdly, no one had actually um, scientifically investigated this until an incredible man called Professor Tim Kasser, who I interviewed a lot for my book. Professor Kasser showed two things. The more you think life is about money and status and showing off, as I say, whether it's on Instagram or whatever, the, m- the more you think life is about uh, gaining status and, and lording it over other people and having lots of money in the bank and valuing people because they're hot or whatever, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious, right? There's lots of reasons I can talk about if you want. Um, he also showed as a society, we've become much more driven by these junk values, right? Become much more driven by worrying about how money and status and, and likes and all of that shit, right? And this is one of the key factors, this kind of move towards junk value. Think about, obviously, it's a bit cheap to say it, but Donald Trump is an extreme expression of those things, right? You could just see it, okay? A person who's obsessed with literally living in a gold tower, having a hot wife he appears to never speak to, and is the most powerful man in the world and is as miserable as a, a person as I've ever seen, right? Because you just see that that way of living does not meet your needs. It doesn't actually make you happy, right? It's insatiable. But what's interesting is Professor Kessler pioneered this, this kind of... Um, or junk values diet, if you like. It's really, in a way, quite simple. People could do this with their friends. So it was with a guy called um, Nathan Dungan. It was a really simple experiment. They got people to meet once a fortnight for four months. And at first, they what they did was they got, it was initially, it was um, teenagers and their parents. And the first thing they did was they said, just make drop a list of everything you feel you've got to have, right? And of course, initially, people say like housing and obvious things. But quite quickly, the teenagers would say Nike sneakers, or quite often the parents would say some expensive handbag or some expensive car or whatever shit, right? And initially, they would just say, well, let's go through these things you feel you've got to have, right? How would your life be different if you had Nike sneakers or a Mercedes Benz, right? And quite quickly, people would say, again, it's very close to the surface. They go, well, people would respect me, right? People would like me. It doesn't take long for you to think that through, right? Before they go, oh, wait, why do I think I want to be, why, why do I think that's the path to being liked, right? We're bombarded with these messages all the time that this is how you get to be liked. You know, more 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own surname, right? So we're bombarded with this from birth. But actually, this is not how you, we all know at some level, it's not how you make yourself happy. So at first, they would talk about the junk values and kind of take them apart. But then it was really simple. They would just meet and say, what do you actually think is important in life? What are moments when you feel satisfied and you feel good, we feel you're doing something meaningful. And people said different things. Some of them it was playing the guitar. Some of them it was like swimming with their kids. Uh, some of them it was just like one of them had a relative who died of cancer. It was doing a charity thing. Some of them it was writing. You can imagine a whole range of things, right? Um, and he said, well, okay, how can you dedicate more of your life to these meaningful values and less of your life to these junk values? And just having that conversation and checking back in every few weeks, it's like a Weight Watchers for the bullshit of our culture, right? Just doing that once a fortnight for, I think it was, it was in four or six months, led to a really significant shift in these people's values, right? And everyone listening to, to your podcast knows, like, you're not going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the things you bought. You're not going to lie on your deathbed 
and think about all the likes you've got on Instagram, right? It's a banal cliche. You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. But as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to distract us from what is meaningful about life. Designed to tell you, you don't feel good? Oh, buy this particular fucking shampoo. Buy this, you know, piece of shit trainers that you'll never look at again. You know, whatever bullshit it is, right? Uh, so I think that is something where you, you meet with your friends. I, I, have, I now have these conversations with my friends all the time, right? What is meaningful? Wait, you think you want that. Why do you want that? Is that meaningful to you, right? Just that reorientation in how we think about life. Just thinking, oh, this shit is implanted in my head by people who wanted to sell me something, right? That is not authentic. That is not me. That is not who I am. That is not going to make me feel good. It might give you a little hit for five minutes. We've all had that experience of going and buying an expensive thing and then getting home and just being re feeling really deflated, right? Like you have that little rush and then you feel deflated. So that, that would give it is a very concrete example of a kind of, yeah, like kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for the bullshit of the culture, right? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mate, I, I absolutely love it. Johan, I, I couldn't be more happy that, that we spoke today. Um, it's so great hearing your voice because having listened to your audiobook, I, I, I kind of feel like I know you a little because you are so personal in the book. So it's super, I'm stoked that I could talk to you in your office today. Um, the book is uh, Lost Connections Uncovering the Real Cause of the Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. I highly recommend the website as well, thelostconnections.com, which is where a lot of the interviews that Johan's describing um, you can listen to and uh, you, know, you can really dive deep into there. Uh, Johan, when you're next in Australia, make sure you, you come over for a cup of coffee, will you? I had a really weird experience in Australia, actually. But I had, can I tell you a really bizarre story that happened yeah, to me in Australia? First time I came to Australia was 2015. And I spoke at, it was either Melbourne or Sydney first. I made this slightly shit joke that then led to this really weird thing. So I think it was actually, I think it was the Sydney Opera House, if I remember right. It was one of them. I said, it was like a weird thing. I arrived, I was in the Sydney Opera House. It was bizarre. And I said, I was really disappointed in Australia because I was raised by, mostly by my grandmother and we would obsessively watch the young doctors and sons and daughters. Uh, and although the people in Australia were super nice, the landscape was amazing, I had been raised to expect it would literally be like sons and daughters, right? And I was like, I've been here for two days now and I've not yet been kidnapped and replaced by an identical twin that I never knew existed, right? It's like a slightly shit joke, but okay, I was jet lagged, right? And the audience slightly laughed and I said, um, is Reg Grundy still alive? Reg Grundy was the guy who made these programs. And someone in the audience shouted out, yes. And I said, well, God should strike Reg Grundy dead for the way he misled the world about Australia, right? Which is a slightly weird thing to say. I was really jet lagged. 
And it was a slightly awkward laugh in the audience. Very soon after, Judge Grundy had actually died. Oh, my God. So I now feel that, like, when I address Australians, I had the power to just, like, strike your public figures dead by by just, <laughs> like, wishing ill on them. So I'm tempted to ask you if Tony Abbott is still alive, but I will, I will resist the <laughs> temptation. Uh, yeah, that's another conversation again, but... I, I- Tony Abbott and others like him 100% believe that they're doing the best thing for the most amount of people. And that is, mm. that's kind of what motivates, what motivates them. And, and that's what I try to remember in my heart, at least, when I see the man talk on the telly. Not, you know, lots of right-wing people change their minds and you can appeal to them through love and compassion. And, yeah, totally. I don't actually want Tony Abbott to be struck down no. by God. I, want to be clear. No. I didn't want Reg Grundy to die either. Yeah. I should just say, this is a weird thing that my publishers always ask me to read out, which I won't read out because it makes me sound like a psychopath, but... Yeah, you mentioned the website, thelostconnections.com, where people can hear what a range of people have said about the book, from Elton John to Hillary Clinton, uh, a whole range of people. Yeah. And they can figure out where to follow me on social media, and uh, they can figure out where to buy the book and the audiobook. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And I think one of the things that absolutely most, like not only was the thing in Fiji, I know I'm wrapping up, but the, the thing that really struck me, and, and I hope we can talk about this next time when you do come around, wouldn't it be interesting, particularly in Australia, where only 18 months ago, we passed legislation for, for same-sex marriage. Wouldn't it be interesting to investigate a community of gay men and women who, within a generation, had everyone around them dying from a disease that no one knew about, uh, to there's no future, I can't have children, what the fuck am I doing here, to everyone around me is alive and I can fully and wonderfully participate in society. Wouldn't that be an interesting uh, exploration into, you know, within our, our lifetime? One thing I think about a lot, when I get, because part of what I'm arguing with Lost Connections is there are these big forces that are making us depressed and we're going to have to take them on, right? And sometimes you can think, oh God, this is a big thing, right? And when I get depressed, I think about a friend of mine some of your listeners will know about, a guy called Andrew Sullivan. He's an amazing American, British-American journalist. And um, I remember this thing that happened to Andrew. So in 1993, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive, height uh-huh. of the AIDS crisis, no hope in sight. Loads of his friends were dying all around him. His best friend, Patrick, had just died. And Andrew quit his job and he went to Provincetown, which is a little kind of gay town in Cape Cod, to die. And he decided... He was going to do one last thing before he died. He was going to write a book about a crazy utopian idea that no one had ever written a book about before. And he was like, okay, I'll never live to see this happen. No one alive today will live to see it happen. But somewhere further down the line, someone might pick up this book and get this idea, right? The idea he wrote the first ever book about was gay marriage. And when I get depressed, I try to imagine going back in time to Provincetown in 1993 and saying to Andrew, okay, you're not going to believe me, but 24 years from now, I'll be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book you're writing now, making it uh, mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce gay marriage, you will be alive to see it. You will be married to a man. And the next day after that Supreme Court judgment, you will be invited by the president of the United States to a White House that will be lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you and other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, that president, he's going to be black, right? That would have sounded like the most ridiculous science fiction you can ever imagine. It'd be like me saying to you, okay, so 20, 23 years from now, a transgender prime minister of Australia will invite us to the lodge to smoke crack with her, right? Not that that's what we want. I mean, the transgender prime minister, yes, the crack, no. But the, but you can see, like, it would have sounded ridiculous, right? It happened. Andrew lived to see it, right? Incredible changes can happen when people 
band together, they fight for them, they appeal in a spirit of love and compassion to the people around them. And of course, things can get worse as well, as you will have noticed from the news in the last few years. But, you know, we, we can, we absolutely have the power to change things for the better. As a gay person, I've seen things change in ways that are just unimaginable, right? Like the, the ways I, I didn't even conceive that they could change like that. The other day I was on the tube here in London and I saw these two girls who couldn't have been more than 16 were making out. And, um, I was actually, it was funny because I was looking at them and I was so happy I was smiling. And then I realized they thought I was some like old pervert and I had to like look away. But, uh, but like we've seen these incredible changes will carry on seeing incredible changes if we fight for them and these things that are driving these very deep epidemics of despair that are manifesting through depression and anxiety and addiction and political extremism and rage um we can deal with them right that they can be understood they can be challenged they can be dealt with amazing johan i'm, I'm so glad to speak to you mate and um I'm, I'm also i'm also really happy did you go out to my friend rich's house out in calabasas uh, oh, Rich Roll, yeah, yeah, I love yeah. Him. It's a great sport, isn't it? He's a he's a wonderful man. Really nice. yeah. I'm I'm glad you got to hang with Rich. He's a he helped me a lot. He helped me a lot. He's a when I lived in LA, he's a good guy. Oh. Have a fantastic day. Have a, sleep well, mate. And I hope your uh, your cold gets better. I'm gonna go and drink an enormous amount of lemsip. All right, Cheers. see Thanks you, brother. Thanks, so Thanks Bye bye. That was Johan Hari. You can find him on Twitter at Johan Hari, J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I 101. Johan Hari 101. Or go to his website, thelostconnections.com. Thank you so, so much for listening to the show this week or both shows this week in a new two-part format. I'd love to hear what you think of it. Send us your email at gmail.com. I have to say a massive thank you to Hermione from Bloomsbury Publishing for helping me coordinate a time to chat with Johan and my incredible producer, Rachel Barrett, who um, is pretty much Doctor Who, the way that she bent time and manage time zones to make sure that could happen between me and Johan from his home in London. A big thank you to Mike Mills, also known as Toe for the epic music as always, and Andy Ma for the audio production. Thank you for listening. Let me know what you think of the new format. Send us your email at gmail.com, uh, and I'll see you next week until we speak. And uh, I'll see some of you on Friday in Brisbane, which will be awesome. So I'll see you there. And if not, I'll talk to you on Monday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.